Uh, this semester, we're going through the book of Colossians. Um, and kind of before we get into the verses we look at tonight, just kind of remind you of Paul's kind of fundamental principle that's kind of his, his thing he's working with the whole time. We've called it, Paul always uses the indicative and the imperative. He always talks about how we, what we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and then out of that flows the commands that we are given in Christ. And so the first two chapters are really, in a lot of ways, first chapter and a half about um, what Christ has done, who we are in Christ. And then as having established that, he begins to give us commands. The first commands we saw a couple of weeks ago were, don't be deceived by false religions. Um, and then last week, Soren got up here and read uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and we kind of have a reiteration of the indicative of who we are in Christ. And then we're going to read verses 5 through 11 this week, which is having reestablished again and remembering who we are in Christ, here are more commands, here are the imperatives, the commands of the Christian life. And I want to give you a little bit of picture of an illustration of what I mean that in Christianity, the indicative comes before the imperative. Um, what it means is that the Christian life is growing into what has already been declared of you. Christian life is growing into what's already been declared of you. And an illustration of this is Elizabeth and Anne's marriage. When we got married and at our wedding, we became one. We were one, made one at our wedding. At the same time, throughout the life of our marriage, we have grown into that oneness more and more. And we are more one now than we were then. We have what was already declared to be true. We were 100% one in union with each other. We're actually still growing into that reality. And uh, we actually use this principle in life a lot of times when we tell people to be what they already are. Right? When a guy does something wimpy, what do you say? You say, be a man. You say, be what you are. When, we, when, when, uh, when a father is struggling with anybody, struggling with anything, and, and he's, he's being a bad father, you say, you're a father. You've got to be a good father. We're constantly telling each other to be what we are. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, this is who you are in Christ. Now begin to live that out. And this is what it begins to look like to live it out. This is, I'm actually going to read the first four verses, chapter 3, 1 through 4, and then... 5 through 11, because those first four verses ground, provide the motivation, provide the indicative, provide what we are in Christ so that we can begin to live it out. Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. It's past tense. Your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all, and Christ is in all. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. 
Lord, struggling with our sin is one of the hardest things we do, and it's one of the things we're all confused by, dear God. And I pray now that you'd teach us from your word, um, that we would receive your scripture uh, authoritatively, and it would work change in our hearts, dear God, and we would find it to begin to be sweet to follow after you. Teach us, dear Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Um, not sure, not a whole lot of seniors in here, but um, some of you might know that in my former life, I was a PlayStation 2 prodigy, if you will. Um, not broadly speaking in all sorts of games, but specifically in one game, college football. It was the only game I ever played. And uh, my particular ability, and this is going to make sense to all of you, but some of you, my particular ability that was very unique was the ability to run the triple option on PlayStation 2. Um, some of y'all have tasted, have seen it firsthand, and have feared. But um, <laughs> used to play PlayStation 2 all the time, and, uh, and I had one when Elizabeth and I got married. And about a year into our marriage, I realized that something bad happened in our marriage every time I turned the PlayStation on. And, uh, and what happened was as soon as the game started... I tuned Elizabeth completely out of my life and my heart. Like, she couldn't get my attention in any way, shape, or form for the next 43 minutes. Um, And the way she responded was she didn't threaten to end our relationship. Um, She didn't punish me. She didn't badmouth me. She didn't stand back. Uh, But she, at the same time, she didn't stand back and not say anything. Uh, She didn't stand back and just wait for me to change. Uh, she loved me, and she said, that hurts my feelings, and I wish that it, it didn't, and I wish that you wouldn't. And that's what she said. And in one of my rare good moments, I sold the PS2, and I uh, got it out of my life. We own a Wii now, so maybe I haven't fully repented that sin. That's <laughs> um, but the reason I got rid of the PlayStation is because I had a new relationship, and I had a new love. And that new love supplanted an old love that I had. I found it more beautiful, and I found it worthwhile to give up old loves for the sake of that new love. And I actually did do something, and it actually did take effort, and part of me didn't want to do it. But I did it because my wife loved me, and I started to love her. And that's the Christian life. Because of a new relationship, because of the love of Jesus, we go to war with sin. Because of the love of Jesus, because He loves us and is working love in our hearts, we go to war with sin. And what's fundamental, before we kind of get into the outline, is this. The ability to love and follow Jesus and the power to do so is Jesus. And it's His love for us. That's our power to fight sin. What proceeds and grounds and drives and strengthens us to follow Jesus is Jesus and His love for us as it's especially displayed through the fact that He lived and died for us and not because we were worthy of the sacrifice, but just because He chose to love us. Soren's whole point last week was simply this, and it grounds everything that we're talking about this week. And if you don't hear his point, if you don't hear this preliminary point, you'll take the rest of what we say and you'll go on and try to live the Christian life in fear instead of living it in Jesus. What Soren said is, even though we struggle... We are united to Christ by faith. And in Him, we are dead to sin. That means that though the sin nature is still there in us and it's still beckoning, 
It no longer has power over us. We can say no to it. In Christ, we are alive, meaning that we are new creations because of His love. We are hidden in Jesus. As we wage this war with sin, Jesus is holding on to us, and He will not let go even in the times that we suffer defeat. We are hidden in Him, and we will appear with Him in glory. Glory is ours in Jesus. We will be with Him. Those are the indicatives Soren gave us last week. The great mystery of Christianity that we so often kind of twist and corrupt is this. You are forgiven, you are loved in, you are secure in, you are given strength in, you are held by Jesus. And the reason why is not because any thought, word, or deed that we ever did for Him is because He chose to love us. And it's by the power of that love that we war with sin. Because of Jesus' love for us, we go to war with sin. And tonight, what we see in this text, I think, is a couple of principles of why we go to war with sin. Jesus' love is the power for it. But here we also have a couple of reasons why, the principles of why we go to war with sin. But also we begin to see the practice of what it looks like to go to war with sin. First, the whys of our war with sin. And the first one is this, and we see it early on in verse 6. As Paul begins uh, to make his imperative to command us, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, he gives us a why. As he kind of interlaces these commands, he also gives us kind of reasons why laced all throughout those commands. And the first one is uh, verse 6. On account of these... The wrath of God is coming. These are the things that God hates. These are the things that enrage God that prompt His wrath. The list is not exhaustive. exhaustive. There are more than just this. These are specific issues He feels the need to address in Colossae. Um, This applies not just to this list, but to all sin. Sin is what your new king hates. And that's the first reason why we are given to battle, to war with sin. The first principle is this. We begin to hate, we should hate what our new king, what our savior hates. This principle actually makes sense to us implicitly. When I came to USC, when I first got here, um, I was not a USC fan in any way, shape, or form. I haven't been much of a USC fan in any way, shape, or form, but slowly but surely I've kind of started to kind of be happy when y'all win. Now the Adams out there feel, you know, obliged to cheer and all that kind of stuff. And kind of getting happy, you know. I'm glad y'all are in the top 25. I'm kind of, I'm just have to say, a little bit of a game card fan. I've started to love the things you love. But something that's actually happened much more than just me starting to love the things you love, is I've actually started to hate the things you hate. Since I've gotten here, Clemson fans have become the most irritating people in my life. <laughs> I actually hate what y'all hate more than I love what y'all love at this point. Um, But as I've gotten to know this campus and this culture and everything, I started hating the things that y'all hate. These are the things that God hates. If He's the lover of our soul, if He's our Savior, if He's perfectly holy, if He's perfect in righteousness, then He only loves what is good and He only hates what is evil. If He is our King and if He is our lover, we must hate what He hates. And this isn't just an arbitrary list of things that a cranky God doesn't want us to enjoy because he's kind of mean. 
What this is is a description of the cancer that destroyed what was supposed to be beautiful, namely God's creation. The reason we hate sin is the exact same reason that we hate cancer. The reason God hates sin is the exact same reason that we hate disease. It's because it destroys something that was supposed to be beautiful. This isn't an arbitrary list. This is a list of what's destroying creation. The first principle of why we go to war with sin is because our king hates sin. Second reason why is because we live in a new kingdom. The passage ends in verse 11. Here there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And it seems like an odd comment to kind of end this passage with. What's he saying? He's saying this. He first of all begins by saying here. What is he talking about? He's talking about among the people of God, in this place, among the fellowship of the people of God, in this place, none of the distinctions that the world cares about carry any weight. They're no longer your significance or your identity. We're all trying to craft significance and identity in all kinds of different distinctions. These are the ones they're struggling with then. Ours are different now. They're achievement-oriented. They're body-image-oriented. They're popularity-oriented. They're approval-oriented. We're all trying to achieve certain distinctions. He's saying, in Christ, none of those distinctions matter anymore. Why? Because your distinction, what marks you out, what signifies you, what is your identity, is that Christ is all And Christ is in all. There's no 4.0 GPAs and 2.0 GPAs. There's no Sigma Chi or Independent. No Baptist or Presbyterian. There's no Honors College normal students, black or white, skinny, big. There's no homeschooler. There's no public schooler. These things are not the things that distinguish you. It's Christ. He's not saying the distinctions don't exist. He's saying they don't matter. They're not your identity. And as he calls us to war with sin, he reminds us that we together, marked out as Christ's people, are the people of the new kingdom. And this is kind of, this is the side where we kind of get, this is the point we kind of get to be cool on. This is the subversive part of Christianity. This is deeply subversive. Our call to war against sin is not God hating on things we like. It is us living out before the world what it was always supposed to be like. Us as a community becoming an advertisement of how the world is supposed to be. Marriages weren't supposed to break. People were not supposed to fall apart. Relationships were not supposed to fall apart. We are called to live out the new reality of the new kingdom before the world. The world was supposed to be torn up by sexual immorality. It wasn't supposed to be broken by addiction. It wasn't supposed to be full of lies and manipulation and anger and slander and deceit. And when those were the things that we walk in, society, culture, creation breaks. I mean, we don't I don't think we even have to make the argument that sexual immorality destroys the fabric of society. All of us in here can look in our own lives and the lives of families we know, if not our own life, and see how sexual immorality has destroyed our either us or our family. We hardly need to demonstrate that lying destroys society. When the truth is cast aside and we lie in our interaction with people, the whole fabric of meaningful relationship falls apart. You're not even relating anymore because you're living in lie toward each other. And when we lie, it's out of fear and self-love and it disintegrates our relationships. Look at the people that you mislead or you lie to and see if it's not true that you either grow distant from them or you actually grow to despise them. We're members of a new kingdom 
And we're not ruled by our sin. We're ruled by Jesus. And all the petty ways that we're trying to distinguish ourselves are no longer the things that we have to use to give us significance. And as long as we cling on for significance, significance, we're going to be insecure. But when Christ is all and in all, there's deep security. We're to put sin to death because we're members of a new kingdom. When Elizabeth and I uh, were called to the University of South Carolina, before we got here, we were officially hired by RUF. But before the full implications of our employment came to effect, before we moved to Columbia, before I set foot on campus, before I met anybody, we started to do some interesting things while we still lived in St. Louis. I bought a Carolina shirt and I wore it. We put our house on the market and tried to sell it. We visited Columbia and made arrangements for living here. We weren't here yet, but we started to live as people destined for Columbia. Glory hasn't come yet. The new heavens and the new earth haven't broken in yet. But in Christ, you are part of the new humanity of the new heavens and the new earth, and we're going to start living that way. And this means, again, that Christians are kind of a rebel force in this world. We don't submit to the rulers of the world, which is sin and evil and selfishness. When the world says, here are the safe places to lie, here's where it's all right to lie, we tell the truth. When the world says, here is where you can be sexually free in whatever manner you free, uh, whenever, which, whichever manner you feel you want to be, you can do whatever you want sexually. In those places, we say, we choose chastity. When our sin and our flesh say impurity, lust, and anger, and rage, and slander, they're okay in these places, we follow a new ruler. We follow Christ. And we put those things to death. Our rebellion against power and sin, it's not... It's not the kind of rebellion we typically think of. We're not taking up arms. We're not pushing the world away from us. Our rebellion comes in the form of sexual purity. It comes in the form of truth-telling. It comes in the form of love. It comes in the form of kindness, kindness to enemies. It comes in the form of forgiveness. It comes in the form of extravagant giving. It comes in the form of sacrifice. Those concepts are radical in this world. If you're in Christ, you're called to that kind of radical life. And it's not a stuck-up, narrow-minded lifestyle. It's a beautiful picture of the way it was supposed to be. We're called to war with sin because our king hates sin. We're called to war with sin because we are, an adver- we are the new kingdom and an advertisement of the new kingdom. But lastly, because you're a new person. Those old things were your identity. He says in verse 7, In these two you once walked when you were living in them. They used to be you. The word walked is how the Bible uses, uh, how the Bible refers to our lifestyle, how our life is conducted, our walk. These things used to be you. These are the things that marked your life before you knew Christ. You lived in them. It's all past tense. You've put off the old self with its practices. And you've put on the new self. Paul is saying, this isn't you anymore. Whatever it is, the porn, the pride, the need to be skinny, the need to control, struggle with same-sex attraction, the racism, the anger, the unforgiveness in your heart, the lying, the arrogance, the unteachability, it's not you anymore. It doesn't fit you anymore. And we need so badly to be reminded of that over and over. That it's not us anymore. We're, we've been risen with Christ. We're not just saved people We are new people. 
This is what Paul's actually mostly saying in the book of Colossians. We're not just saved people. We are new people. That's the whole point of verses 1 through 4 before he gives us these commands. He's saying put this stuff to death because it doesn't fit you anymore. An illustration of that is um, if you do watch football, I need to have, you know, don't need to use too many football illustrations. But um, When you watch football, a common injury is people mess up their knees, tear ligaments in their knees, ACL, MCL, and things of that nature. And when you watch guys come back from those injuries especially in the collegiate and the professional level, they're given millions of dollars of phenomenal medical care. And on the other end of that injury, their knee is actually, and their leg, is actually stronger than what it used to be. But when they step out on the field again, they run actually softer than the way they used to run. They cut more slightly than the way they used to cut. Their knee is newer and stronger than what it used to be, but they're still prone to run as if their knee is still weak. And they've got to be reminded, no, your knee works perfect now. It actually works better now. We need to be reminded because we're prone to continue to live in our old self. And in fact, it's not us anymore. We are new in Christ. And Paul's reminding uh, reminding us of this all throughout the letter because we need constant reminders that, hey, you're new. This isn't you anymore. So what do we begin to do? What does the practice of going to war with sin begin to look like? And the first thing is this. We begin to get a sense of the deepness of the war and the deepness of our sin. As he begins in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And literally what the Greek says there, it's not just what is earthly in you. It actually is the earthly members of your body. And what he's not saying is that your physical body is bad, but what he is is he's doing is he's conjuring an image that our sin is still in us, even though we are new, the sin nature is still there, and it's in some places so deeply ingrained and metastatized and stuck to us that it feels like it still is us. And what that means is that as we begin to put sin to death, sometimes it's going to feel like death. It may, it'll feel... Like, it'll feel unthinkable to put those things to death. It'll be the thing that Jesus thinks would never, that you think Jesus would never ask of you, that you could never give up, that you would die without. An easy illustration is, is, uh, or an easy way to kind of think about this is just think about the work of confession. In James 5, James actually tells us part of the healing process of sin is the confession of sin to one another. What is it that you can't fathom telling anybody? What is it that you're trying desperately hard to justify? What are the things that all your friends see in you that you refuse to believe is sin because putting it to death would feel like death? Sin is deep in us, and we have to get a sense of just how much it has attached itself to and permeates and is all over us. And the mortification of sin is not merely stopping doing some things. Mortification, putting sin to death, is not merely the stoppage of certain actions. It's much more fundamental. It's much deeper. It's letting the gospel go deep into our hearts and killing the thing deep down inside of us that loves sin. Um, my favorite book beyond Scripture is a book called The Mortification of Sin, an old English Puritan named John Owen. Every one of you should read it. It is short, um, but it is hard to read. Uh, but you will be blessed uh, 
uh, like you wouldn't believe if you read it. And in that book, he talks about uh, the way sometimes we think of killing sin as just fruit pruning, cutting off the external manifestation of things. And he says, A man may beat down the bitter fruit from an evil tree until he is weary, while the root still abides in strength and vigor. And the beating down of present fruit will not hinder it from coming, bringing forth more. And this is the folly of some men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the appearance of sin, the external manifestation, it coming out in certain ways in your life, but they leave the principle, the root, the heart issue untouched and unsearched out. And so they make little or no progress in putting sin to death. Killing sin is not fruit pruning. It's killing the thing down in our heart that hates Jesus and loves evil. That hates Jesus and loves ourselves. The root of every sin is idolatry, which is actually the hatred and distrust of Jesus. The list, again, it's not comprehensive, but Paul's doing something in that first list. When he gives this list, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Sexual immorality is this. It is anything that is sexual at all with anyone except your spouse. That's what sexual immorality is. Anything sexual. Anything sexual with anybody except for your spouse. Whether it's, this includes pornography, this is, includes fantasy life, this, thing, this includes things you do by yourself and with other people. Anything sexual. And you have, well, I have the questions. Well, what about this, right? What about this? Where's the line? Here's the answer. I know the answer to everybody's what about this. The answer is no. That's the answer. I'm, I'm, it's kind of funny, but it's kind of true. Um, the way that we're called to relate to anybody of the opposite gender is to relate to them as a brother and sister. And your goal for your relationship with that person is to make them beautiful to Jesus. That's how you're called to relate to the people in your life. And so when you have your question, what about this? My question in return is, are you making them more chaste and pure and beautiful to Jesus? That's your guiding question when you ask, what can I get away with? You can get away with whatever makes them beautiful to Jesus. Most of the time we're just asking, how much can I have? But Paul goes on from there. He goes sexual immorality to impurity. And impurity is kind of, it's breaking in. Sexual morality, in some sense, is the thing we do on the outside. And impurity is kind of the uncleanliness of sexual sin. And passion is the uncontrollable desire that leaves us there. Evil desire is just evil, debased desires in general. And then he gets to covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a progression that's going on here. He started on the outside and he worked all the way down to the heart. He says, put to death sexual morality, but more than that, sexual dirtiness. More than that, sexual desire. More than that, evil desires. More than that, the heart of the issue is covetousness, which is really just idolatry. See, he went deep down in our hearts, and he's saying to put these things to death is not to fruit prune. It's not to take care of a couple of external manifestations of your sin. It means going deep down in your heart to the place where you love the things that God hates, where you covet, where you want something other than Jesus and kill that. We've got to see that our sexual brokenness is not the fact 
that we fantasize. It's not the fact that we look at things on the Internet. It's not the fact that we make out with people we're not married to. The root issue is idolatry. It's the belief that Jesus is not worth following and He doesn't love you. To indulge in sexual immorality is to say that it, it, sexual immorality, is more important to you than Jesus, the King of all creation. It's idolatry. You have to see the deepness, the heart issue of our sins. And the first step is calling our sin what it is. It's not just a little mistake we made on the edge, on the outside. It's idol worship. It's unbelief. It's hatred of Jesus. We've got to get an understanding of the deepness of the issue, but also the wideness of the war. The next thing Paul says is, uh, you know, on account of these things, the wrath of God's coming in these two, you once walked when you were living in them, verse 8. But now you must put them all away. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. The way John Owen says it, says, he says this, If you truly hated sin as sin, and you hated every evil, you wouldn't be any less watchful against everything that grieves the Spirit of God than against the particular sin that grieves your soul. So what he's saying is, it's not legitimate to only contend against one sin because it happens to be the one that disquiets your own personal soul. Paul is calling us to put it all away. In verse 5, he gives us a sense of the deepness of sin in us, but in verse 8, he gives us a sense of the wideness because there's nothing more revealing, there's nothing that permeates our relationships more than our communication. And these are all social things that involve our communication. The anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, and lying to one another in verse 9. Jesus explains in Matthew 15 that what comes out of your mouth reveals what your heart is. They're not missteps. They're not mistakes like, oh, that's not what I said. It's not really me. Jesus says what you said, that's really who you are. These are all the things that we wear on the outside that go beyond us out into the world, that reveal all of the darkness in our heart. Our mouths reveal them. And Paul says, all of them. Put them all away. It's a picture of the broadness of sin. And his last imperative is stop deceiving each other. And I think um, this does, in fact, refer to lying, but it has a broader implication than just the ways we kind of bend and twist and neglect parts of the truth or deny the truth altogether I think it actually also has to do with the way we walk into this room and the way we walk in church because it's a command specifically given in the context of a group of Christians. He's saying don't lie to one another. He's talking to the church. Hey, church people, when you're together, don't lie to one another. And this leads actually to the last point that we have to take our word to Jesus and we see that He's sufficient. The first thing that we have to begin to do, here's the very first practical step, is stop deceiving the body of Christ about who you really are, about what's going on in your life, about what you're struggling with. Joe Novenson listened to a sermon of his. He pointed to Genesis 4-7. When Moses talks about sin, he calls sin is, uh, sin is a thief crouching at your door, seeking to come in and own you and dominate you. And he draws out that image for us, saying, you know, if there was a murderer who is crouching at your door, if at your, you went home tonight in your apartment, in your home by yourself, your house, your home by yourself, and someone was crouching at your door seeking to break in, here's what you wouldn't do. 
You yeah. wouldn't say, I'm too scared to let other people know that I'm the kind of person that has a thief crouching at their door. It's not the way you respond to that. You call the police. You call your friends. You call your parents. And what Joe says, if you're living in secrecy with your sin, is you're sleeping with the enemy. And there's healing to be had. And the church is the place where Christians is the safest place for Christians to come and struggle. The first thing you have to do is bring it to the body of Jesus, not to people that you know will help you justify it, or the people that you know who they are. You know if you tell them and not others because uh, if you tell them, they will press you on it and they'll allow you to kind of hang on to it and justify that indulgence. But bring it to the people who know the gospel, who have tasted deeply of the mercy of Jesus, and people who also hate sin enough to shepherd you through putting your sin to death. The purpose of confession, according to James 5, is not to pay for our sins by feeling guilty. And sometimes that's why we confess our sins is if I tell somebody and I feel guilty in front of them, that's kind of a payment for my sins. The purpose is healing. The church is the body of Christ. And as such, it's not a place for people to come and get crushed in. It's a place for people to get healed. Closing kind of points of application. To begin to put sin to death... This is what it's not. It's not going, yeah, that is so right. I've got to work on that. It's not going, it's not realizing things about yourself is what it's not. It's not, you know, I am a perfectionist. I am a control freak. And I really shouldn't be. We're all good at that. Anybody can do that. It's not thinking, oh, look, it's so much crap on the Internet and I really shouldn't. It's not the mortification of sin. It's not, uh, I know I'm so judgmental, I shouldn't be. I know I'm so obsessed with diet, body, whatever it is, exercise. Uh, I know I shouldn't be drinking. Uh, I know I shouldn't be obsessed with guys, girls, whatever it is. Uh, I kind of know I shouldn't play this many video games. I shouldn't do these things. Uh, I know those are me and I probably shouldn't be doing them. That's not the mortification of sin. That's not putting sin to death. If all you're doing when you think about Bible, God, religious things, ethics, morality, your own struggle with things, if all you're ever doing is saying like, ah, oh, I know this is me and I really shouldn't do these things, if that's the extent of it, that's not the mortification of sin. That's just us trying to assuage our conscience so we won't feel bad. Kind of, hey, I recognize that I'm out of control on these issues and I shouldn't be, so kind of points for that, right? That's not putting sin to death. Putting sin to death is chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. It's setting your minds and hearts upon Jesus. Here's what it is. It's reading the Word of God. Not because you're checking off your guilt boxes, not because you have to, but reading it because Jesus loves you and you don't believe it and you refuse to change. And so what we've got to do is encounter Him and let Him change us. Here's what mortification of sin is. It's going to church. Not because you're checking off your Christian boxes, not because that's what Christians are supposed to do or that's what you always did. But we go to church because our heart is so hard that the best thing we can do is only kind of admit that, oh, that's kind of us and it shouldn't be, which is not mortification gets us nowhere. And the reason we hate church is because we have to go and that's what we're supposed to do. 
And the, the reason we hate church is not because the music's lame or because of the people dress. The mu- reason we hate church, the problem with church is us and our hearts. Go to church because you need Jesus. Because the best attack you have for yourself on your own sin is, oh, I really shouldn't do that. Go to church and eat and drink of Jesus. Not because, hey, that's just kind of part of what you do in church, but because when you eat and drink Jesus, you see, Jesus had to die to change me. And we need that point driven home in our hearts over and over and over again. And out of God's good grace, He said, you know what I want you to do? I want you to come once a week and let me remind you of what I've done for you. And you, don't, you can go away more than once a week, by the way. Amen. Keep going. We've got to bring our war to Jesus in battle with Him and with His strength. And so, again, someone's message last week was the key to all of understanding this. See, the way so many accountability groups go wrong is that people come together and they talk about their sin. And what they do is they come and confess sin together and everybody says, oh man, I'm so sorry. And, and then other people in the group say, you know, here's some practical advice of how to stop. And accountability groups need to do what we all need to do, which is what Soren reminded us Paul calls us to do, which is not set our hearts and our minds on our sin and meditate on sin in practical ways to stop sinning, but set your hearts on Jesus. Come together, confess sin, and then talk about Jesus. Encourage each other in Jesus. We need to be reminded of the love and mercy of Jesus. You need to meditate upon Jesus. You need to gather with the Lord's people and feed upon Jesus. Sing to Jesus. Rest in Jesus. And as you do, you'll find two things happen. A, you never came on your own accord that, in fact, it was Him that was drawing you all, of t- all along. But B, you'll begin to hate what He hates. You'll begin to put to death your sin as you fall in love with Him. You put sexual immorality to death. You'll stop lying. You'll put off anger because He worked love in you. Let's pray.